Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Simply Amazing. I'm Tim Ryder. We have another special guest with us this week, the uh, Mets beat writer from The Athletic, Mr. Tim Britton. How are we doing today, Tim? Pretty good. What's going on? Nothing much. Exciting times in Flushing. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we had talked about doing this two weeks ago, right before Thanksgiving. Uh, I don't know what we would have talked about then. I have a feeling we've got more to talk about now. I would say so. Uh, we'll start off with the most exciting news over the last 24 hours, of course, which is Jake Marisnik getting traded. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we'll, we'll touch on Jake later. Uh, I am sorry to see Blake Taylor go, but again, we'll we'll, we'll jump into that in due time. Uh, of course, biggest uh, biggest news on the docket is uh, the Wilpons look to be finally uh, relinquishing control of the Mets. Uh, billionaire hedge fund manager Steve Cohen uh, is reportedly uh, in negotiations to take over a significant portion of the team uh, over time, of course. Um, Tim, you had a terrific article for The Athletic on Thursday morning, um, I guess, regarding what this means for the franchise. Uh, I, I guess we all have questions, and there's still, of course, lots of news to come out. But um, would you care to give us your take on on what's happening right now in Queens? Yeah, so that, I mean that was the the bombshell uh, of the off season for the Mets. You know, I, it, we've heard you know Tiki Barber speculating about it on his radio show just a couple of days ago, uh, and I think he got mocked roundly for that. Uh, and then I had heard earlier on Wednesday, just Ken Rosenthal, who I have the fortune of working with at the Athletic, uh, reached out and said, "Hey, you know, he's hearing something along the lines of a uh, possible sale of a portion of the team." And then he got that statement from the Mets before the rest of us in the media did uh, about uh, the negotiations with Steve Cohen. Uh, and then, you know, that statement, including the idea that the, the Wilpons would stay in their current roles, but only for five years, uh, certainly made it certainly suggested that it was going to be a majority stake going to Cohen, which which Bloomberg then later reported could be up to 80 percent of the team. Uh, so that that's obviously for uh, a fan base that has gotten grown accustomed to, but has always uh stayed crit- critical of the Wilpons. Uh, that's the kind of news uh, to brighten a day that had otherwise been marred by Zach Wheeler signing down the Jersey Turnpike in Philadelphia uh, and, and puts light at the end of the tunnel of the uh, more austere period the Mets have been living in uh, for the last decade or so. Uh, but, you know, it's it's still really hard to say exactly how this transition is going to play out over the next five years, what Steve Cohen would be like as the majority owner of the Mets. Uh, And even, you know, nothing is set in stone just yet. Uh, The Mets were in negotiations with David Einhorn uh, in, I think, 2011 about buying a a larger stake in the team and with a pathway toward majority ownership. And that all fell through. So I think you've got to, until the ink is dry, it's not set in stone here uh, for the Mets. So you don't want to get too far out in front of it until then. Well, I know the the report regarding uh, Cohen potentially taking over 51% of the team uh, as soon as this deal goes through. I guess that's got the fan base their their hopes fairly high as far as seeing change on a on a you know a rapid basis. But um, I guess even if his stake goes up to that, I guess it was 20%. Um, you would have to think he'll have a little bit more input. Um, the Mets might have a little bit more capital to work with going into next off season when they have so much more room on their um, uh, on their payroll. Uh, do you think that this is going to be? Are we going to see changes as a fan base? Um, you know, before that, say five year period, or do you even foresee Cohen 
potentially moving into a, I know this is very early and very speculative, but moving into a more uh, position of control ahead of that time. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think this is five years of the status quo and then a, a bunch of change in 2025. I think it's probably a more of a transitional, period, a gradual process over those five years. Uh, and, and like you mentioned there at the end, you know, there's there's instances in the past where uh, a new owner came in with an agreement that the old owner would kind of ha- have control for a set period of time. And that time period has shrunk. Uh, it happened when uh, Stuart Sternberg bought the Rays from Vince Namoli. It's supposed to be a two and a half year transition turned into an 18 month transition. So there's that potential here. And I, I think the, you know, it, obviously we're, we are speculating here and you wonder what the Wilpons motivation is uh, to sell the team right now. And, and I wonder whether uh, Fred Wilpon, who is, you know, turned 83 last month, whether he wants to accelerate the pace to try to win a championship uh, and whether seeking outside, seeking, you know, a greater investment from one of the team's minority owners uh, like Cohen led them down this path to where, you know, maybe if you, you add a, add some uh, some financial might to the team while the Wilpons still have the controlling interest, maybe they can get uh, that World Series championship uh, in the next few years. I mean, that, that's that's probably along the same lines of my thought process. I'm thinking that, you know, Cohen's putting all this money into the team. He's going to want to increase the value of this team. Um, the Wilpons know that this guy has money to spend. Um, the value of the Mets certainly uh, is in in place to um, to increase over the next few years if, if Cohen does, in fact, uh, make a stronger commitment than the Wilpons have over the last 10 years or so. Um I think the Wilpons want to, you know, let that kind of inflate before they ride off into the sunset. And there's nothing wrong with that. They invested a lot of money and a lot of time in this. And um, whether us as as fans agree with how they did it is kind of inconsequential at this point. Um, to them, this is a business investment. They're going to get they're, they're reportedly getting a premium. This is an overvaluation of what they were uh, valued at earlier in the year. And uh, and Cohen wants to see this thing grow before he takes over his his majority control, whenever that might be. So I guess, you know, with, with glasses of optimism on, I'm, um, I'm fairly hopeful that this is going to be a, a, a quick, uh, at least a noticeable change in how things operate. But again, maybe we've just been tortured and jaded for so long that uh, any glimmer of hope is just, just really setting us over the edge. But um, you brought up Zach Wheeler. And the way things unfolded yesterday, it didn't really get lost in the mix. Um, I'm sure we're going we're gonna to be reminded pretty often once we see him a handful of times a year in, in a Phillies uniform. But um, yeah, another terrific article you've had out on Thursday for The Athletic uh, regarding, I guess, how that process went down. I guess Mark Carrig also uh, put out a pretty uh, interesting uh, take on the whole situation. I, I want to bring up one little excerpt from your article. If the Mets don't want to spend like a big market team, they have to act with the efficiency of a smaller of a smaller market one. Excuse me. Um, and as you noted, when they acquired Marcus Stroman last year, that really put them to the brink of uh, of only making minimal additions this year, unless they wanted to exceed that competitive balance tax. I guess my question is: Are there viable replacements? And is this a situation that we can expect things to turn out differently now that I guess I don't want to say the culture is changing because that's premature, but 
do we do we see the Mets changing their ways in situations like this? Because they're going to come across it with Syndergaard, Conforto, and the list goes on. They have a bunch of young arbitration, pre-arbitration players that this is going to be a continuing uh, occurrence for the next, let's say, half a decade. Um, I guess as far as the Wheeler thing, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and how that played out. But uh, leading into that, I really – uh, what are the options as far as where they go from here with such little funds to spend? Yeah, so I, I think you know it, it wasn't in you know when they when they made the uh, the trade for Stroman, it kind of made it clear that th- there was not going to be a 2020 Mets rotation that included Marcus Stroman, Noah Syndergaard, and Zach Wheeler, all three of them. Uh, the likelihood was that one of you know a lot of people thought Syndergaard or Wheeler might be dealt in July. Uh, neither was, and then. You know, that paved the way for Wheeler going elsewhere uh, in the offseason. In terms of a, a replacement, you know, the, they've got about, by my back-of-the-envelope math, between like 13 and $15 million under that uh, CBT threshold, <clears throat> which doesn't, you know, if, if you're looking to do some other things in free agency, whether it's to sign a backup catcher or bolster your bullpen, doesn't leave you a lot of room to, to add much in terms of a starting pitcher. Uh, you know, the, even the kind of, uh, innings eaters that don't excite the fan base, the Tanner Roarks and the Rick Porcellos the, that follow in the footsteps of Bartolo Colon and, and Jason Vargas, the last two free agent pitchers the Mets signed. Uh, th- those guys will cost between eight and $12 million per season. So that eats up a lot of that space, which makes me wonder whether the Mets might be looking more uh, at an impact bullpen addition, which then allows you to slide Seth Lugo into the rotation. That's a little bit cheaper to do. Uh, it does, I mean, you, you need to add kind of multiple pieces to that bullpen, and you've got to hope that Lugo transitions back to starting uh, as smoothly as he did to relief. Uh, but I, I can see them going down that path, uh, you know, maybe signing a Will Harris type, uh, putting him in the bullpen to replace Lugo, and then hoping that Lugo can be the, the fifth starter that you're looking for. But, you know, those those things aren't as exciting. That's not really replacing Wheeler uh, to quite the extent that you wanted to. And, and my issue with with how things went down is it's not that the Mets uh, are unwilling to spend $120 million on Zach Wheeler. Uh, I think, you know, you can fairly question whether he's going to be worth that contract and whether a team that has Jacob deGrom signed long-term and has other starters about to hit free agency should be, whether the Mets should be investing that in, in Wheeler in particular. Uh, the, the issue I have is you probably could have signed him for less than that at some point in the last two years. Wheeler was, was open to an extension at various times in 2018 and 2019 uh, and if you knew once you acquired Stroman that you weren't going to be able uh, to go over the, the CBT threshold, that you weren't going to be able to afford Wheeler, even if that deal was at a more reasonable level, even if it was, you know, five years and $75 million, if he was getting $15 million a season, even that uh, was going to be too much for them, then why did you hold on to him at July on July 31st? probably could have maximized that asset better than just getting like the 75th or 80th pick in the draft. You know, I, I heard at that time that the Mets were looking for multiple big league pieces in return for Wheeler. That's a big ask for two months of a guy, especially when he had a four seven ERA at that moment. Uh, but clearly there was enough interest uh, in, in Wheeler as a pitcher that they probably could have gotten more than the 80th pick in the draft back for him at that point. Oh, most definitely. And I guess, as you noted in the article, they've gone down this path multiple times and chosen to, quote unquote, wait it out. And and that's just um, it's they're not maximizing the potential of the talent they have here. 
Uh, we've seen it time and time again. Now they have this group of young players that uh, this is arguably the most talented arbitration, pre-arbitration group that, that I can remember. And this is, you know, 30-something years of, of following this team. And I just, you know, this is um, – it brings me back to Cohen where this seems like a perfect time for an increased cash flow to, um, to take the reins of this organization, but they have big decisions coming up. Now you have, I guess I, maybe this was earlier in the week. You noted, uh, as most of the beat did after, um, word got out that the Mets were willing to include pre-arbitration players in to, to sweeten deals in, in potential trades. um, a lot of the fan base has talked about uh, has gone back and forth between JD Davis and uh, Dom Smith as viable trade pieces and or bench pieces here next season. Um, if you had to pick, who do you see in flushing next year? One, both, none. Uh, I, I would say I, I think they, the Mets will probably prioritize Davis over Smith. Because first of all, there's there's two there's a couple different positions he can play uh, that Smith can't you know he can play third base Smith can't play third uh, and you know neither of them is really good in left field uh, but they can get by there I think the biggest difference is Davis is a right-handed bat versus a left-handed bat uh, and the Mets lineup right now is a little bit lefty leaning because you've got Nimmo McNeil Conforto and Cano. Uh, that's, you, you know, half your lineup is left-handed. Uh, Davis gives you someone who, you know, if you want, if you're going up against a left-handed starter, you can play him at third base or in left field, uh, with a, some regularity. And I think they'll value that a little bit more than, than what Smith brings you. Uh, I, I, I think there's still the chance that you hold on to both. You know, it, I don't think you have to trade either one of them. You don't have to trade Dominic Smith just because he's blocked by Pete Alonso. He's making the, you know, he's going to be making around the league minimum. He's a valuable piece as a bench bat. You've got a spot in left field where you can play him on occasion. Uh, if there are injuries the way that there were last year and the way that there were in virtually every Mets season in history, uh, there's a pathway to him playing some significant role for you. Uh, but if there's another team out there who sees Dominic Smith as their everyday first baseman and is willing to trade you something commensurate with that evaluation, uh, then I think you've got to explore that. I don't think you just trade him for the best reliever you can get. I think you trade him for a good player that fits a player of equal talent who just fits your roster a little bit better uh, at this point in time. I agree. And I guess uh, when J.D. Davis's name was being brought up in, I guess, potential trade talk, and this was just amongst fans without, with, I guess, minimal report um, uh, regarding it, uh, with Starling Marte. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I could see the idea of moving a, a J.D. Davis and a prospect uh, or a couple of prospects, I should say, for multiple pieces. But moving a player who is such who holds value to your major league team in 2020 just for one other as you said it really doesn't make a whole ton of sense um you kind of have to be blown away at least not on Davis's side in my mind with Smith i mean there was a significant portion of the season last year where he was uh the only left-handed bat on the bench um he could certainly uh play that role he could back up Pete when 
you know, Pete needs a day or, you know, if injuries pop up, as you said, he could play in left field. Um, it's all going to determine what, like you said, what his market value is and, and what, um, kind of return Brody can, can secure on that, on that front. But, um, let's, and I'm going to turn this into Marisnik now. Uh, the Mets parted with uh, a promising young uh, prospect in Blake Taylor and another in, I don't have my notes in front of me, but uh, for Jake Marisnik, who profiles very similarly to the Keon Broxtons of the world, even the Juan Lagarises of the world. Um, do you think that this was premature? Do you think that the organization sees something in Marisnik? Uh, it seems like, a, at least in my through my eyes, a steep price to pay for a below replacement player uh, above average fielder of course but on the offensive side of things um, maybe that's not what they're looking at him for it just doesn't seem like a, a something to give up a promising young pitcher and like Blake Taylor for to me yeah so I think there's a, a couple different ways of looking at this the, the first is that the Mets were going to need to add some center fielder over the course of this offseason they couldn't go into next season uh, with in Nimmo, McNeil, Davis, Conforto, Smith as their outfield with, with no one who's really a, a good defensive center fielder. They needed someone to at least back up Nimmo. Uh, and Marisnik, you know, there was multiple tiers of guys they could have gone after. The dream was always Mookie Betts, but that, that was never really going to happen. And then the next tier was a guy like Starling Marte, who was an everyday center fielder that would have pushed Nimmo to left field and, and improved the Mets defensively in the outfield. Marisnik is that tier below that, a guy who, you know, can play some against lefties, uh, is a good, is an excellent defender, probably a better defender right now than someone like Kevin Pillar, uh, who some fans wanted after the, the Giants non-tendered him. Uh, I, I think the, the price you pay in, in Taylor and, and Kennedy Corona is the outfielder that they sent. I don't know much about Corona. Yeah, yeah Taylor. I, I couldn't remember his name. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, it's it can be tough sometimes. Uh, so Taylor, you know, obviously has some intriguing qualities uh, as a left-hander out of the bullpen. The Mets have a little bit of left-handed excess uh, right now, and it, it's it'll be interesting to see how that role plays out over the course of the next season with the new three batter minimum role role rule coming in, uh, and how that affects a guy like Daniel Zamora, for instance. Can he get you know, Zamora couldn't really get either side of the plate out last year. Uh, can he get both of them out uh, in 2020? So I, I think it's another example of the Mets doing kind of what they did last year. In, in you know, the Davis trade is an example of it in paying in prospects what they didn't want to pay for in free agency. You could probably sign someone like Jake Marisnik uh, to a, a deal that's a little bit maybe a little bit more expensive. Uh, than the the about three million that he'll make through arbitration, but the Mets wanted to save that money, and they decided that it was easier for they would rather have the extra cash uh, underneath the the CBT threshold than uh, a guy like Taylor, uh, which you know I think you can on an individual case by case basis is okay to do, but when it becomes a pattern and it, it is becoming a pattern for the Mets, you worry about the drain on the prospect system over time uh, if you if you're constantly trading those guys for marginal. Uh, major league improvements. Oh, I agree. And I think that, um, it, it, you know, Brody definitely proved last year that he was willing to, um, to dip into the, the reserves to, uh, to pull talent and in a perfect world, I mean, sure. Giving up the prospects he did last year to get Cano and Diaz as 
you know, as much turmoil as it sent the Mets future payroll into, um, in a perfect world, it, it could have worked out well, but it, alas, it didn't. And there's still time for it to, for the tides to change. But, um, you know, I, I don't have a problem with necessarily moving prospects for talent that's going to help this team win next season and then the season after, and it's going to make sense. Um, in my mind, and I guess, you know, we have to see how the rest of the offseason plays out, whether Marisnik is your fourth outfielder, uh, a fifth, maybe a fifth outfielder taking up that 26th man spot, and they bring in another center fielder to throw in there. Who knows? I mean, Brody's got a long offseason ahead of him. Um, you have teams like the Braves and the Padres who are going out and uh, – they they know what they want and they're they're picking their guys and they're they're getting out there early and doing their thing. Do you think this is a calculated move by Brody to kind of he has a plan and he's not going to rush into things? I mean, I, again, this is just an opinion type question, but um, are, should we be comfortable with Brody appearing to sit on his hands at this point in the off season? Uh, you know, I, I think we'll see what happens at the winter meeting. Certainly the pace of this offseason has accelerated over what it was last year. Oh, and the, sure. the, the Mets were a team that, that did move relatively quickly last offseason. Uh, I think it was just over a year ago today that they made the Cano and Diaz trade. Uh, and then at the winter meetings, they added Jerry's Familia. Uh, shortly thereafter, it was Wilson Ramos. So they, they made a lot of moves before Christmas. Uh, and you know, it used to be that, that a lot of teams were done by the winter meetings. Now it seems like that's where a lot of teams try to get their start. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out for them over the next couple of, uh, next week or so. Um, you know, with, with Marisnik, I think part of the motivation was that there were a couple teams in on him with Houston. Houston has basically six major league outfielders or, or, you know, they had six major league outfielders. They were going to move one of them. Uh, and Marisnik was always the one that made the most sense. So I think the Mets wanted to lock that in uh, when they could uh, in, in terms of landing him and, and solving that center field issue, uh, at least on a, a backup basis. Uh, I, I'm guessing that uh, this pretty much kills any chance of adding a, a Starling Marte or a guy that would be a, a different starting center fielder and everyday center fielder than Brandon Nimmo. Uh, so, you know, you, you kind of cross center field off the list and move down the line to, uh, okay, now you've got to figure out what you want to do with that fifth starter, how you want to add to the bullpen, whether you think it's necessary to add a backup catcher ahead of Tomas Nito, uh, who's out of options uh, going into next season anyway. So th- those are kind of the decisions that we'll see how they, they handle now over the next week and get kind of a, a clearer picture of how they prioritize those different things out in San Diego. Now, um, you covered Rick Porcello a bit. Um, while on while with the Red Sox beat, correct? Yes. Uh, but I know there's been reported mutual interest between the Mets and Porcello, who's a New Jersey native, if I'm correct. Um, do you see him as a good fit for this rotation on the back end? So I, I think if you're looking for an innings eater, I mean, it's hard to be more durable than Porcello has been. I think he's made at least 27 starts in like eight straight seasons or something like that uh, in terms of innings pitched over the last – a handful of seasons. Uh, last I checked, I forget what the exact time frame was for for the years I looked at, but he was only behind Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer in terms of innings pitched over like a four or five year stretch. Uh, so if if the goal is to hand the ball to someone every fifth day uh, who can keep you in the game, I, I think Porcello fits that bill. 
Uh, he's a guy that I enjoyed covering very much with the Red Sox. I covered him from 2015 through uh, 2017 in Boston. Uh, and he had, you know, basically two, uh, a bad season in 15, a really good Cy Young season in 2016, and a mediocre one in 17. Uh, he's kind of alternated good and bad uh, for a few years now. Uh, but he's a, a smart pitcher. He was really the leader of that pitching staff uh, even after they added David Price and, and Chris Sale. Uh, he was kind of the, looked upon as the veteran, even though he's still only, he's, I think he's only 29 or 30. Uh, he's been in the league for so long since he, he got such a, a, got a start at such a young age. So I, I like Porcello personally. I think uh, if, if there is someone who's going to try to figure out how to best utilize his stuff, he's the guy. Uh, the concern is that uh, he's had a number of seasons where he hasn't been able to figure that out, uh, and last year was the worst of them with an ERA up over five and a half. Uh, so I, you know, I, I think he is an option. I don't know that he's the best option, but uh, I think he fits the bill if the goal is to try to to, to get that Bartolo Colon, Jason Vargas type, uh, and he's even more durable than those guys uh, were when they signed with the Mets. I guess. It- I'm intrigued by the idea. I, I, I am intrigued by Porcello. I, I think that he would fit that fifth starter role, ideally. Um, I'd like to see what Jeremy Ricardo and um, uh, Jeremy Hefner have, uh, what kind of effect they have on his game. These guys are, you know, pretty devoted to the analytical side of uh, of pitching, um, biomechanics, the whole the whole gamut there. Um, and I'm sure that's commonplace across the game at this point, but a new set of eyes with, uh, I guess, an advanced, not not an advanced metrics set of, uh, it, which, how should I say it? Um, I guess just a new set of eyes on him, I think, could really, uh, you know, kickstart him. I, I know that it, it appears that the, the talent's still there. Um, you know, the Mets are saving money in areas, like you said, Marisnik's only going to cost them around $3 million next year. Um you know, if they're going to – I don't even know what he's projected to make Porcello uh, next year. Um, but it, that would be an investment that, it, you know, as a fan, I think I'd be on board with. But I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things with him is, you know, when he came, when he first came up with Detroit, he was such a two-seam sinker guy, getting, you know, huge ground ball rates. Uh, and, and the Red Sox, when they traded for him, traded for him at a time in, you know, between 2014 and 2015. That was before the home run explosion, before we heard anything about launch angle. And when, you know, pounding the bottom of the strike zone was really paying off for a lot of people. And over his time in Boston, he kind of had to, to transition the way a lot of different pitchers have had to from a two seam to a four seam to figure out how to keep those fastballs separate. Uh, and that's something that I know he struggled with at times, especially in 15 and 17 uh, when I covered him. And I imagine it was probably an issue for him a bit in 19. Uh, so I, I think, you know, he's, he's a guy who's who's pretty smart about pitching. Uh, and I, I trust that he's doing everything he can to figure out the best way to attack different hitters uh, w- with his, his pitch mix. Uh, so I, I think, you know, in that way, it, it would be interesting to see what a, a different set of eyes, like he said, uh, with, uh, Hefner and maybe a Cardo, if he is back with the staff, can do with with him given an entire season. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. And again, Van Wagenen has a lot of decisions to make this off season. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out, but uh, we shall see. Now, Tim, I know we brought up we were just talking about your time uh, on the Red Sox beat. Now, you grew up a Mets fan. I, I have to ask, what is it like on the beat for the team you grew up rooting for? I know you have to put the fan thing aside. 
you know, journalism, you know, <laughs> but uh, what is, you know, I know the article you have pinned onto your Twitter profile is excellent, but um, could you expand on it a little bit? Yes. I mean, growing up, it was, the, the Mets were my team. Uh, I was born actually in October of 86 uh, between games one and two of the Mets Red Sox World Series. So a career path covering those two teams seems somewhat preordained. Uh, you know, I, I think the toughest thing, I, like, I, you know, I, my first job out of college was as an intern covering Mets home games for MLB.com. Uh, and you learn pretty quickly when you're covering sports. Uh, you know, it happened to me in college too, where I, I would, I, I went to Duke and I covered Duke basketball. And, you know, you can be in the stands at Cameron Indoor Stadium one day and then the next home game you're on press row and you're stone faced as they're blowing a 17 point lead to Florida State or something like that. Uh, you, you learn to kind of suppress that fandom, uh, really quickly as a journalist. I, you know, in 2009, that first year, I remember I'd be driving home from City Field sometimes and be like, man, things have not gone the way I expected this season. <laughs> uh, and then, a, you know, after that point, I, I spent a year covering Yankees home games as an intern for MLB.com and then got the Red Sox job in 2011. And it's really hard to root for uh, your, your baseball team uh, when you're not seeing them on a regular basis. So much of, of your fandom in this sport is based off of the night after night watching, sitting in front of the TV or, or – in front of the radio and, and, and taking in your team's games. So it's really, it was really difficult for me to follow the Mets. I think if, you know, the 2011 through 2014 Mets to me are just one blob of mediocrity. <laughs> like, I don't know which, you know, I forget which season Omar Quintanilla played a lot. I forget which season had Colin Cowgill starting in center field. I forget which year was the Brad Emis year. Uh, to start the season at second base. So uh, those years kind of all blend together. Uh, the thing that I think is nice is having come back to the Mets. And, you know, I, I knew a fair amount about Red Sox history because they're the Red Sox. It's a little bit easier when they, you've got kind of that national uh, following the way they do. Uh, coming back to the Mets, there are those touchstones that, you know, I have with people uh, my age about what it was like to watch, you know, the 99 Mets. Uh, I wrote a story about Robin Ventura's Grand Slam single uh, in October uh, on the 20th anniversary. And that's, you know, that was my favorite baseball game of all time. Uh, Outstanding. And, by, by the way, that was a great article. Oh, thank you. Uh, really fun to do and talk to all those guys. You know, it's when when Michael Conforto in early 2018 hit, you know, they're, they're down one in Philly and he hits a foul uh, in the ninth inning and he hits a, a, a home run just foul and then hits the home run to put them ahead. Uh, that reminded me of what I'm like, oh, that's Cliff Floyd against the Angels in 2006. Yes. Uh, or 2005, uh, you know, it's it's having those kinds of touchstone moments in your memory uh, that I think helps you, but you're still kind of divorced yourself from the passion of it because, uh, you know, the, the guys on the Mets now are not the guys I grew up rooting for in any way. Uh, not, you know, Wright was the last one of them, uh, and I covered two games that he played in uh, right at the end of last season. So uh, it is different in that sense. Uh, you know, I don't have the same relationship to them that I did as a fan. It is cool now that my family will actually read my stories. They didn't really care about what was going on in Boston ever. It was <laughs> nice to have that. Oh, for sure. That's, you know, it, but, it, you know, sitting there last last September for the David Wright send off, you know, just I, I could only imagine what's going on inside your head. It's like, this is so freaking cool. But, you know, you can't say that because, of course, you know, journalism. But, um, Tim, this has been really a lot of fun, man. Thank you so much for coming on. 
Oh, no problem. Anytime, man. Um, and of course, everybody, if you haven't already, subscribe to The Athletic. It's worth every penny. You have the best writers in the country, in the world, arguably. Uh, just pinpoint it for your team. Whoever you're looking to read about, it's there. I could not recommend it enough. Uh, Tim, where can everybody find you on social media? Uh, it's just at Tim Britton. That's B-R-I-T-T-O-N on, uh, on Twitter. Excellent. Thank you so much again. Um, maybe we'll touch base before the, uh, before the, before the season kicks, picks up again. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you so much. Let's go Mets.